Thanks to Audible for supporting Industry Focus. For a limited time, get three months of Audible for $6.95 a month. Choose one audiobook and two Audible originals for free. Visit audible.com slash fool or text fool to 500-500. Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every single day. Today is Wednesday, November the 20th, and we're talking healthcare. I'm your host, Shannon Jones, and I am joined by healthcare guru Todd Campbell. Todd, how's it going? Hi, Shan. Glad to be here. Looking forward to a, a really good show and <clears throat> wondering where the heck fall went. I, I swear, I, I blinked and it's all of a sudden it's gone up here in New Hampshire. And I, I guess that's just the way it goes. That's just the way it goes. Because same thing here, literally had no fall. It went from being summer to middle of the winter here. So I feel your pain and I love the fall. But what I really love, though, is that the uh, Biopharma News Fairy has been very kind to us, Todd. Matter of fact... We've got two uh, just awesome updates that have come out of the biopharma space. So I want to dive right in. The first of which is one we've actually gotten a lot of listener questions about on Twitter. People have been asking about this, but it's none other than Amarin. That's ticker symbol A-M-R-N. Um, Amarin, known for its drug, Vasipa. It's a basic, basically a prescription strength fish oil pill. And it recently had uh, its day in front of the FDA and their panel of advisors to see if the already approved drug could actually get a broader label um, and really get out to a much wider patient audience. Todd, we've talked about Amarin on the show before, but just give us a brief overview of exactly what the company does and what this fish oil bill is all about. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is this is definitely one of those um, you either love it or hate it kind of stocks. It's been a battleground stock for a long time. The story stretches all the way back to 2012 when the FDA approved the use of Vasepa or Vasepa um, as a way of lowering triglycerides, which is you know fat in the bloodstream, um, with the thinking that okay, if we can reduce triglycerides, maybe that ends up reducing. Um, the risk of heart attack and stroke. They actually did a study uh, because the drug was originally approved for use in people with very high levels of triglycerides, 500, um, I think it's uh, 500, what is that, milliliters per deciliter or milligrams per deciliter. Escapes me right now, Shannon. Close enough. But (laughs) yeah, close enough. Yeah. So very high levels of it. And um, they did a study that actually showed that it was also effectively reduced triglycerides in people with 150 to 500. Uh, but the FDA said, no, we're not going to approve uh, the broader label at that time for the 150 to 500 cohort of people because there's really no evidence, no proof that lowering triglycerides does reduce the risk of stroke and heart attack and potentially death. And that was a really big blow to Amarin because the number of people with 500 or higher is pretty limited. It's pretty small. And the number of people with 150 or more is very big. I want to say that there's 50 to 70 million people in the world um, with, with at that level or, or, or even more. Uh, and so the, the idea very quickly you know, took hold at Amarin that if we want to make this drug a blockbuster, we're going to have to conduct a study that actually shows that it does all the things that we hope that it would do, meaning that we lower triglycerides, and in lowering triglycerides, it does indeed reduce the risk of um, these major cardiovascular events. And that was a seven-year study 
in the making. It took a long time and a lot of money for that study to be run. I think they enrolled over 8,000 um, patients in the study last year. Sure enough, the data came out and it works. It shows that, yes, indeed, it does reduce the risk of these major events by, I think, uh, overall 25%. It reduced stroke by 28%, heart attack by 31%, and death by 20%. And that was on top of the 25% reduction that patients who usually take Vicepa are also taking statins. And statins also have been shown to reduce the risk by 25%. So a really, really important finding. So that gets everybody very excited because, okay, now maybe they'll start to prescribe Vicepa to a much larger patient population. Thing is, the FDA has to weigh in before they can include it on the label to say, yes, it works, it lowers the risk, and it can be used in this much larger uh, patient population. And that's where we ended up you know, being last week, waiting for some insight, if you will, into whether the FDA will give a green light for this language to be added to the label. Exactly. So coming out of that uh, advisory committee panel, they did vote unanimously to recommend in favor of this broader label. Of course, with that, though, there was still a lot of debate about how broad this label should be. I think one panelist, um, I believe was a patient, he actually said, I don't want this to be cardio candy. There really needs to be some more um, refinement of who this this treatment is right for. And as you mentioned, Todd, I mean, this really is a very polarizing stock for more reasons than one. But more so, I think it really got started because, of course, this is basically fish oil. Um, and But it's not exactly the your grandma's over-the-counter fish oil that you can get from any drugstore. Um, Amarin has really been trying to drive home the point that um, it's vastly different from those non-prescription options more so that it, if you can take 10 to 40 of those over-the-counter capsules, that equals just one daily dose of Vasipa um, because this drug is basically taken in four one-gram capsules every single day. Um, and really for them, they've also been hanging their hat on the fact that this is a fish oil pill capsule that's much cleaner, more pure. It doesn't contain something called DHA as well. So what you can get over the counter is not the same as what they're trying to promote. But still, um, they were able to come through the advisory committee panel showing that, yes, we should move forward with um, this broader label. The FDA, though, uh, ultimately can decide against this. Oftentimes, they do tend to recommend in favor and whatever the panel ends up going or moving toward, but that's not always the case. And I believe the PDUFA date is December the 28th, so we could get a decision by the FDA uh, really sooner than that or around that same time frame. So, of course, all eyes will be on what the FDA ultimately decides because, Todd, this is a huge market opportunity. It is. It's it's massive. It's a it's a blockbuster indication. You know, I think that at the peak, statins were selling at a rate of twenty billion a year, and you know that was before a lot of these went off, uh, uh, had their patents expire. So I mean, a lot of people look at this and say, okay, well, you know, even if you have them, which uh, um, say it doesn't get prescribed to everybody that's that's currently on a statin, because not everybody's going to have one hundred and fifty plus. Uh, or there is some sort of uh, ratcheting back in the patient population that is included on the label. This could still be a billion dollar, um, a billion billion dollar a year drug or more. And I think that that's where the 
I guess people looking forward because you know as investors that's what we're always saying okay that was then this is you know what's going to happen you know in the future and the question simply is will the label if it's approved and I think it I think it will be I mean in the briefing doc it looked like the FDA was in was supportive and it's not like this was a squeaker where you know you had them vote by a margin of one in favor of it was unanimous. I would be very surprised if they didn't end up um, approving this addition to the label. Uh, so then the question becomes how many more people, you know, what's the size of the addressable patient population? And then based on that, what is a proper valuation for Ameren? I mean, right now we've got a market cap of a little bit over $8 billion. You've got, I think, uh, you know, sales had more than doubled last quarter. Uh, but they're still looking at maybe 400 million or so um, in sales in 2019. So maybe you're saying, okay, well, you know, that's that's still kind of pricey right now in the current sales. It's like 20 times sales. Um, but if you get to a billion, then it's like eight times sales. Now it's like, okay, I'm maybe I can start to justify that. So a lot of this is already baked in, perhaps. Um, there are still a lot of expenses associated too with this rolling this out to a larger pop- population. They're doubling their sales force from 400 to 800, I think, is what I read, Shannon. So you know you've got a lot of expenses that are going to be flowing through in 2020, and then it'll be interesting to see. Well, do after an approval, will those sales accelerate? And then what will the run rate be exiting 2020? And then just to make things even more confusing for investors, there are some competitive dynamics that people have to be aware of too because. You know, Vasipa isn't the only um, only drug that works to lower triglycerides on the market. AstraZeneca has one, and there are a couple other companies that are working on their own. The big difference, and you highlighted earlier, is that Vasipa, as far as I know, is the only one that is solely EPA, it does not having any DHA. So we don't know whether or not you know AstraZeneca's study um, of their drug which does have DHA, their study for cardiovascular outcomes, will yield a similar result or not. Um, there has been some thinking that the presence of DHA has been what's caused, caused traditional fish oil pills not to have cardiovascular benefits in prior studies. So this is going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. If AstraZeneca says, no, it didn't meet it, then obviously off to the races for Amarin, but that's a big wild card. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I I step back and I think about is even if, let's say, you know, Amron gets this this broader label and that gets approved, they're trying to go after these secondary prevention patients. And these are basically patients that haven't had like an established cardiovascular disease history. Um, so by and large, these are patients that are probably very asymptomatic. So even assuming that the doctor prescribes this, because um, I think right now, what is it, about $300, uh, a little over $300 for about a month's supply. I just wonder what the uptake of a prescription like this will be. Because, of course, they're used in conjunction with other therapies right now. But if you're talking about moving the prevention needle a little bit earlier, um, and there's a cost involved, and I may be asymptomatic at the moment, um, how many people will actually go back to get those prescriptions refilled? How many of them will be compliant and adherent 
to therapy. I think we've seen this in other cases where, you know what, it, the data, the evidence was there. Um, the drug was able to make it across the approval finish line. But then just in the commercial setting, it just didn't have that same stickiness, that same appeal. And to your point, Todd, I think this is really where Ameren um, is going to have to beef up its sales force and beef, beef up it, its commercial team to really drive and educate that even more so. The other question mark I have is, does this make Ameren a potential, even more so, buyout target for another big pharma who is facing some patent cliff issues? Perhaps, perhaps. Um, a lot of people have been kind of holding out hope that that's what will happen. Obviously, it would be a lot uh, easier to, to, to take this drug and then market through an existing sales force. So, you know, if some of the, somebody else came in like J&J or, or Pfizer or AstraZeneca or anybody came in with these large sales force and be able to turn them loose, not have to hire all these brand new people. But it, that hasn't happened yet. And, and I kind of think that it probably won't happen um, until we know more how those competitive trials pan out. Uh, if the competitive trials pan out well, then, you know, how much do you really want to spend? Is it worth the eight times? You know, how many years of patent protection do we have on this? It's already been the market since 2012. You know, so I think that there's a, there's a lot of different dynamics there. But I, I, I could see it happening, but I think we have to wait and see how these trials, other trials pay out. And I think... Um, AstraZeneca could have data from their trial either next year or maybe 2021. I think, and then I think there's a smaller competitor out there that's working on one, um, and we should have results at the end of this year for theirs as well. So maybe that, because that has DHA in it too, maybe that will kind of like, you know, give a little bit of a look through to what could happen with AstraZeneca. So it's a little bit of a wait and see game now. I mean, especially since the shares have rallied so significantly already following the adcom decision yeah so a lot to watch in the fish oil pill wars <laughs> that are just getting started um, on the other side of the break we've got more news and updates coming your way but first a quick word from our friends at audible so the holidays are just around the corner personally this is my favorite time of year it's also the time of year when everyone is traveling and running around to buy gifts for loved ones but I would encourage you to think about giving yourself the gift of listening with an Audible membership. For a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for $6.95 a month at audible.com slash fool or text fool to 500-500. And you may be wondering, what exactly is Audible? Audible gives you access to an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including bestsellers, motivation, mysteries, thrillers, memoirs, and more. There's also Audible Originals. These are stories created exclusively for audio, like documentaries, audiobooks, and scripted shows. I recently picked up a great audiobook by Nate Silver called The Signal and the Noise, Why So Many Predictions Fail But Some Don't. And if there's one person who knows why some of these predictions work and others don't, it is Nate Silver. By the time he was 30, he built an incredible system for predicting baseball performance, and he predicted the 2008 election almost to a T. He's also an incredible blogger, but in this book, he really walks through forecasters of all kinds, whether that be weather forecasting, sports, politics, yes, even the stock market. 
And for the good ones, the good ones that can forecast really well, he explains how they think their keys to success and if they're really good or just lucky. Predictions have their place, but this book by Nate Silver is a must read for anyone who really wants to understand the science and the nuance of prediction. So for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for $6.95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. Each month, choose one audiobook plus two audio originals for free. Just visit audible.com slash F-O-O-L or text FOOL to 500-500 and give yourself the gift of listening. All right, Todd. So the story I've been waiting to talk about, uh, that is none other than fresh news from CRISPR Therapeutics. That's ticker symbol CRSP. They just released first in human trial data. Um, It's so much excitement and so much buzz about gene editing, the promise of gene editing. I can tell you even just here at Full HQ, uh, yesterday, uh, Tom Gardner, Motley Fool co-founder and CEO, literally interrupted a meeting to step out and ask why CRISPR's stock was skyrocketing yesterday. So there's a huge amount of focus on this stock here at Full HQ and really around the globe. Um, But shares of CRISPR, if you look at just year to date, they're up 144% this year. Granted, it's been a very bumpy road. uh, But Todd, it's not just CRISPR making big moves. Also, its partner, uh, which shared data with them yesterday, Vertex Pharmaceuticals is up as well. What can you tell us? Yeah, CRISPR has jumped from, I think, $40 to about $70 just since mid-October. I mean, that's an amazing move. Vertex Pharmaceutical, uh, no slouch on its own, obviously a massive company, so it's it's pretty impressive that it's gone from 170 to, I think, 216 at the time we started talking today. So we're talking about two companies that have made huge moves, and the reason for that excitement or optimism is preliminary data for CTX001, which is a gene editing tool, therapy, however you want to describe it, that's in phase one, two studies for people with beta thalassemia and sickle cell disease, which are two um, diseases that are characterized by uh, faulty inability to, to, to um, um, produce hemoglobin. And what we saw from CRISPR and Vertex as far as data was pretty compelling. But I mean, I always have to temper expectations. We are talking about only two patients, one patient with thalassemia, one patient with sickle cell uh, disease. Um, but we did see some pretty remarkable um, outcomes, if you will, so far uh, with reductions in the need for transfusions for beta thalassemia patients who typically have to have many transfusions per year to survive. Um, and also a reduction in uh, the case in vasco um, occlusive crisis, uh, which is a very painful you know event that happens with sickle cell disease oftentimes lands people in the hospital and you know the one patient who had come into the study having suffered I think it was an average of or median of seven of those per year um, hadn't had any over the course of the ensuing four months or so and then in the beta thalassemia you know we saw a situation where the person didn't hadn't, hadn't hasn't had to have transfusions for a number of months after receiving CTX 101 uh, as well so yes a lot of a lot of uh, excitement if you will for the potential to I guess re-engineer um, a, a patient's ability to produce uh, adequate amounts of, of hemoglobin 
Yes. Another uh, key data point that I think stuck out, too, was the levels of fetal hemoglobin. Um, and really, with high levels of fetal hemoglobin for beta thalassemia or sickle cell, um, it's beneficial because it does bind to oxygen better than adult hemoglobin. And so management was going in expecting to see levels at about 30%. Um, but, I mean, early results, again, it's just... Two patients, so I, I want to temper expectations here. But early results, um, it was at 99.8% for certain types of red blood cells contained for the, the beta thalassemia patient and 94.7% in the sickle cell patient. This is important, an important area to watch because I think this will really determine just the curative potential. Obviously, if you're talking about gene editing, you're hoping to see a cure and the levels at which um, their their treatment can actually be durable over the long term. And we're not seeing um, a lot of these these cells revert back to what they were. I mean, that's, that's the key here. So we'll know moving forward just how durable this treatment is. But right off the bat, extremely, extremely encouraging. Um, I know they have plans to enroll up to 45 patients in each disease over the next two years. So this is still very much an early, early sign um, of what is to come. But just like we talk about all the time, Todd, with biopharma, biotech, you can have really good early phase one, phase two data, and oftentimes when you expand it into a phase three setting, all goes away. So tempered expectations, but really encouraging. You also saw some um, other gene editing companies like Editas um, jump up on the news as well. I think all in all, I think the scientific community and also investors are really just kind of cheerleading that, okay, there is something to gene editing. The question is, though, just how durable of a response is it? Yeah, and the safety. And the safety is an issue, too. You know, I mean, we're, we're talking about CRISPR-Cas9, you know, with the ability basically to to, to take pieces of, of a cell, it, it, you know, cut away part, parts of DNA and, and replace or edit and delete um, part of your body. Now, in the case of this particular uh, medicine or therapy, what we're doing is we're taking progenitor cells and we're removing them from the body and we're re-engineering them so that they can actually produce that um, um, infant or the young, the one we're born with, ability to make hemoglobin. Now, in typical patients, that ev eventually shuts off and it, you know, adult hemoglobin uh, is produced. Um, what they're trying to do here is say, okay, well, if we can produce the hemoglobin that, you know, is produced early on when we're first born, um, maybe we don't need the adult. And, you know, so far, again, that's kind of what, what maybe the evidence is suggesting at this point. You know, we had in beta thalassemia that I think was nine months of transfusion independence for someone who, you know, had, was often having to get these blood transfusions. And you have to remember, too, that, you know, blood transfusions are expensive. Um, they, they put patients at risk for, for organ damage. I mean, it's, it's, there's definite need for better, uh, a better mousetrap, if you will. And certainly, it seems like gene editing could, could be that mousetrap. But we also have to remember that, they, you know, one of the fears is that gene editing may have unintended consequences. And we won't know if those un there really are those unintended consequences for a while, which is, again, why we're watching this trial play out over the course of the next couple of years. Investors should also realize that, you know, even if the phase one, two trial is eventually successful, and again, we're talking about one patient for each of these indications, 45 to enroll in each of these indications, even if it is successful, they're still going to have to do a registration trial 
after that. So maybe, you know, we could be talking, uh, you know, I don't know, eight years before this is something actually that could make it to market. So we just should bear that in mind as we're trying to figure out whether or not this is an investable investable moment for these stocks. Yeah, so true. So true. Still very early on. And as you mentioned, safety is going to be an important consideration. Thankfully, there weren't any serious adverse events, um, but there were some concerns even just with the preconditioning regimen really to get the patients ready to receive this where they started to see some concerns. So it's not without its risk. And also, as you mentioned, Todd, long term, what, what are the unintended consequences of gene editing? So a lot to watch in this space. You've got competitors also attempting to do the same thing. But like always, we will keep all of our listeners up to date on all the latest. As for us in this week's Industry Focus Healthcare show, that'll do it. We want to thank you so much for tuning in. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is being mixed by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening and full on. 